We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, December 14th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll be visited by the executive director of AMVETS, Joe Shinelli. We're going to talk to Joe about a number of subjects, including an issue where apparently some recently separated veterans are getting inaccurate information in regards to their education benefits, including the GI Bill. Joe's going to walk us through that issue and bring a few others into the spotlight as well. Later, the Chief Operating Officer of Patriot Boot Camp, Josh Carter, will join us. Now, Josh is a Navy veteran, and if you're wondering what Patriot Boot Camp is, well, you're going to learn later today, but I'll give you a little bit of info right now. His organization is on a mission to assemble and activate an inclusive community that advances veterans and military spouses in their mission to become creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs leading the new economy. Can't wait to talk to Josh about Patriot Boot Camp in just a little bit. But first, let's kick things off by welcoming Jake Hughes into the studio. Good morning, Jakerton. How are you? I'm fine, Erico. Erico and Jakerton. That's that's our that's our uh, alternate identities. That yeah, we that's use. How, it's how we add a more culture to the show. It's also how you know, like if you're going to a hotel, you check in as Jakerton Hughes so that the throngs of adoring fans that you and I both have, of course, you don't go in there. Much like a professional athlete or. Uh, uh rock star rock stars yeah who was it um oh i think it was uh michael vick had a, a nickname ron mexico he used to check into uh <laughs> hotels under it was like ron mexico what are you doing dude but anyway uh we've got a lot to talk about today on the show with our guests but as we start off every show jake and i we're going to talk about the latest and greatest news and info from around the world of the veteran and military sphere before we do that you have a good night? I actually did. So I had a very good night. I got some I got some good sleep. I uh hmm. I package up my computer ready to get it on eBay. That's and right, because you won a better it, computer than the yes, one you just bought. Exactly. So, hey. No bids yet, but hey, we're getting there. You're gonna get it up there. I got like less than four hours of sleep last <laughs> night, and I have no idea why. I was just like one of those things where you're laying in bed and you're trying to fall asleep, and then you're like, oh man, I'm still not asleep. Open your eyes. Oh my gosh, it's after 1 a.m. and I have to be up at 5? Oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and it wasn't. I woke up this morning. I have three alarms that go off. I know that I'm a deep sleeper. At this point in my life, I usually wake up to the first one. Sometimes I don't. The second one, definitely. And the second one is farther away in the room, so I actually have to get up to uh, turn it off. And then the third one is in the same place as the second one. Uh, they're, those are both on my phone. And then the first one is uh, a little alarm clock next to my de uh, bed. And... I went over and turned off the second one and went right back to bed for another like five <laughs> minutes. It's only five minutes in between each one, but I needed those extra five and I think they helped. I think I'm feeling a little better than I would have been if I didn't get those extra five yeah. minutes from hitting that. Hey, them little power naps can help. They can, man. I remember having a couple of those during, uh, during my time in the military, particularly on ships. 
Oh, yeah. I've talked before about how I didn't spend a lot of time on ships, like three years total out of 13 on uh, ocean-going vessels. And, at, yeah, you'd be on a, a, a duty day, which in the Navy, you're on a ship, you get there, uh, you know, turnover is usually at like 7 a.m., so you had to get there at like 6.45 or something like that and check in, do turnover with the previous duty section, uh, and then you'd be there until, well, if it was a weekday, until the end of work the next day. So you're working from... You know, everybody stood duty in the military before on a ship. Yeah. It's just a little bit worse. You got to stand watches and do all this other crap that you have to do, like a security rover. That was what I ended up being uh, on my last ship, the Frank Cable. I would be, um, oh, what was I? Officer of the deck or petty officer of the watch officer. I don't remember what I was exactly, but I would watch the quarter deck or I would be a security rover and have to walk around the ship with a uh, nine millimeter just looking for I don't know what terrorists looking for terrorists who snuck on board uh, a submarine tender, which I suppose is possible. Speaking of Navy ships, Jake, President Trump, apparently, according to the Military Times, just made a 355 ship Navy national policy. But we're still a ways off from that. I mean, we are nowhere near 355 ships. I'm not sure exactly how many we have right now. Uh, actually, here you go. 277. So you're talking about almost 100 more ships. What does that mean exactly? I don't know. Are these little ones that we're talking about? Are they the new littoral combat ships? Are they aircraft carriers? What are we looking for as far as the ships? Not particularly sure about that, but it's going to be very expensive because all of those ships are incredibly expensive. Yeah, and then you got to think about we got we need more personnel to man them, so that's going to yeah. be a serious increase in forces. Well, it depends. Here's the thing: if you're talking about an aircraft carrier, yes. If we added, you know, they're they're talking about adding what fifty five plus twenty three is seventy eight ships, basically being added to the fleet. If you're talking about aircraft carriers, that's 78 times you know, 6,000, something like that. These new ships, the littoral combat ships, and these other little uh, kind of small boys, as we call them, they barely have a crew at all. They have a crew of like 50 people on board. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. A buddy of mine is now um, the chief engineer on one of those ships that just came out of uh, the shipyards, and I think they're doing their workups and all that pre-commissioning stuff and stuff like that. Um, it, when a Navy ship gets built, it has to basically prove itself before it's officially a, a Navy vessel and it can be deployed. Um, and I believe that's the part of the process that his ship is going through now. He put a picture up and said it was like 75% of the crew. It's like 30 people. Wow. It takes nobody to operate them, basically. Now, part of the problem with that is... I don't understand exactly how you deal with damage when it happens. And we've seen it happen a few times this year with our beloved United States Navy, my beloved United States Navy especially. Uh, we've seen issues where ships crashed into each other. We've seen in the past fire on board our vessels. Uh, in fact, my first ship, the USS Saipan, there was a fire in the gym on a weekend. Thankfully, I wasn't on duty, uh, but the duty section had to deal with a fire in the gym. Again, they, we were at the pier in Norfolk, Virginia, so uh, it wasn't as bad as it uh, possibly could have been. A fire at sea, that's one of the worst things you can deal with. But when you have something like that take place on board the ship, it takes a number of people. I mean, a hose team is 
I don't know, 10, 15 people in and of itself. You got two of them go in at a time. Uh, two hoses essentially is is what we would typically do on the side pan in our repair locker. Two hoses going in, you know, one would go up and then they'd pull back and then the second one would go up. You'd have replacement people on the hose and nozzlemen. It, it takes a lot of people to deal with damage control specifically. I'm sure they have a plan for that. Well, I hope they have a plan for that, but you just wonder with these ships that require such a small crew, exactly what that's going to mean for them uh, in those situations that just, they arise at sea and you've got to handle them. There's nothing else that's going to come along and help you out there. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of ships we're talking about here, how many of them we know. What kind? I don't think we know quite yet, but it'll be interesting to see if the Navy moves towards that smaller crew type of ship. And it's it's fascinating. For someone who was on, again, uh, uh, an amphibious assault ship, which had a crew of about, I guess, about 1,200 sailors or so, and then we pick up two, 3,000 Marines from a Marine Expeditionary Unit, you know, thousands of people on board this ship when it was out operating with a uh, full crew and full complement of Marines uh, on the Frank cable. You were talking about like 700 people, 600 people, something like that. These ships, it's under a hundred people and they're operating and doing high speed stuff with them. It's absolutely fascinating. And some of them are modular. What I mean by that is you can actually change the layout of the ship for different missions. Like if you're going to uh, deliver seals someplace, Okay, well, they can set up for that mission. If you're going to bring cargo or medical supplies, they can set up for that mission. It's uh, a really interesting new, I don't know, new new facet of life for sailors on board these ships. Uh, we'll see exactly how it continues to play out. I don't think aircraft carriers or amphibs are going away anytime soon, but hey, I guess you never know. Looking at that other sea service, the one that operates typically in a little bit shallower water than the Navy, the Coast Guard Academy. There's a story that's coming out that the Coast Guard Academy says an investigator has recommended discipline against two cadets for harassing a classmate. The two cadets who are uh, uh, being charged essentially are white and the cadet who is being harassed is black. Apparently, this is uh, prompted by an October incident in which a cadet played a racially offensive song in the black cadet's room. The black cadet left to tell a peer counselor returned to find the background screen of his computer had been changed to show the Mississippi state flag, which includes the Confederate battle flag. Uh, not the kind of thing that you want to see at some place like the Coast Guard Academy, but you know, it's an interesting story and it goes to show you as we were talking about last week, while you do have things like the hoax at the Air Force Academy and you do have things like this sailor on board uh, on board the aircraft carrier just last week who they did an investigation on supposed hate crime against him and found out he was actually the one that did it. This stuff does still exist out there. And you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, because of that story last week with the sailor on board the aircraft carrier uh, turning out to have basically uh, put stuff on his own rack or bed on the ship. I looked at this store and I wondered, well, is this a real story? You look at the headline, Jake, and you think to yourself, is this legit? Because yeah. now questions have been brought up because of the idiot who did that on board the ship or the idiots at the Coast Guard Academy, or not at the Coast Guard Academy, the Air Force Academy who did what they did. Now if this, and it appears to be a real incident, there's going to be people questioning it. Like, well, did that really happen or did he change the screensaver himself or herself? We don't even yeah, know the It's gender. the classic problem of uh, the boy who cried wolf and that we get all these 
these people, not got, I gotta be careful with my words there. Uh, people that do this kind of things to themselves, they are, uh, they're doing that to try to bring attention of this kind of stuff actually happens, but they fake it. So when it actually happens, people's initial reaction is, oh, here we go. Another hoax. Yep. And that's when I saw the headline, when I saw the uh, AP story on it, I was like, well, what's this one about? Cause we've already had, we had the air force Academy telling us they were sure that something happened and it turned out it didn't in this one. There's been an investigation already. We didn't hear about this until after the investigation, which I think is probably the best way yeah. to go about things. Uh, Coast guard Academy uh, is also kind of an insular place in that it's so small. It's in Connecticut. Um, it's, it's in actually new London, uh, kind of near where my mom grew up uh, about an hour, uh, hour and a half or so from where I grew up. And, uh, it, it's a small school. It's, it's, from what I understand, the most difficult of the service academies to get into because the class size is so small and there's so many people who want to get in there because the Coast Guard really, if you, it, it, there's a lot of things that you can do in the Coast Guard that translate very well to careers after the service, particularly if you look at like the merchant Marines, a lot of the people running our container ships and cargo ships or prior Coast Guard. Uh, it, it's a great school, a difficult school to get into. And I think because of their smallness and almost benefiting because the Coast Guard is, in many people's eyes, an afterthought. When you think about the military, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Coast Guard gets thrown in there afterwards. It's it's an interesting thing. Uh, they handled this, it would appear, the right way, that they did their investigation. Um, they say that there will be charges brought against the cadets uh, with violations of the regulations of the Corps of Cadets. But nobody knows exactly what kind of discipline they face. If they're guilty of what they did, then that might be the kind of thing where you would say, all right, well, thank you for attending the Coast Guard Academy for the period of time that you did. Have a great time trying to find another line of work. Yep. Thanks for playing. Yep. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. There you go. We have brought our typical guest that comes in a little bit later into the studio a little earlier because I want to talk to you, Joe, about a news story. It involves your let me turn on your microphone. That's That would be a good idea. It's early, and I got less than four hours of sleep last <laughs> Told night. Told you he was tired. Yeah. Uh, so, Jake uh, and 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 I have talked about this story before. Big news coming to the Marine Corps out of Okinawa specifically. And I, I get, do I feel you like trepidation? Like, oh, no, what happened in Oki now? Not a lot of good news comes out of Okinawa. This, not necessarily good news for anyone but the Marines and sailors who were stationed at Okinawa, the alcohol ban and curfew has been lifted. Uh, that was the one imposed on U.S. troops. And it's actually, I think it was uh, Japan overall. They did it for everybody after some of the accidents in uh, Okinawa. And that involved uh, a 61-year-old Okinawa man dying in a vehicle accident with a Marine driving another uh, vehicle, a truck. Japanese police say he was intoxicated when the accident happened. Uh, it led to the death of the 61-year-old Okinawan man. You know, when you when you hear about this, and, and I'm sure there's some celebration going on in Japan right now, like, all right, we can go out and party. Day. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm on a different pay schedule than I used to be in the military. First and the 15th of every month, man. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that is, uh, boy, some of the uh, facilities and uh, localities out in town are going to be doing very well tonight, I would imagine. Probably not so well 24 hours later when all the money's gone that they had to spell. The ban has been lifted, but 
E5 and below still face a curfew between midnight and 5 a.m., according to U.S. Naval Forces Japan. So a press release from Naval Forces Japan says all military personnel may now purchase and consume alcohol both on and off installation. They are prohibited, however, from consuming alcohol off installation between midnight and 5 a.m. unless they're in an off-base residence. So if they're in their own house, okay, then you can have a drink at, at 1 a.m. You should probably go to sleep. Once again, the Marines and sailors who are in the barracks are being punished for not being married. Yeah, there's there's one of those. I mean, you know, when they do it by rank, that's at least based on some sort of achievement like you've been in for a little while at least if you're an e5 and it doesn't need to be that long depending on what rate you are i made e5 let me think i came in in 98 put on third class in like 2000 put on what 2001 2002 probably no 2001 it would have been 2001 so i was only in three years by the time i put on e5 in the marine corps and i know advancement is different in all the services i mean in the air force to be an e5 it's like 25, 30 years to get to E5 for most of them. What's it typically like time frame wise in the Marine Corps? So if we're talking about sergeants, that's what it is. Sergeants and below. What's the age of your average sergeant would you estimate? So it does vary depending on what your job is. Because yeah. they have different structures for different jobs. Uh, my particular career field, I was, I think, about two and two years and nine months. So pretty quick for the Marine Corps. Wow. Uh, but typically it's about three and a half years. Usually, pinned on sergeant, just as you're looking at reenlisting. Yeah, wow. same thing for the army. Yeah, which makes sense. It's kind of a little bonus. Like, hey, if you stay in, people get to you get a little bit of that NCO action. What do you think about that? It's also a continuing issue, and we've talked about this on the show before. We've talked about it in our newsroom. What is wrong with Okinawa? What is going on over there? Why are there so many issues, and why do they not always? I mean, there are, as we said, Navy and Marine Corps in Okinawa. Why do they so often involve young Marines? What do you think the issue is in Okinawa, Joe? I, th I think it's a magnifying glass. I think what's happening over there happens everywhere. Young people are going to do less than mature things. Stupid things. Stupid you didn't things. want to say it. You're, you're <laughs> nicer than I am. Dum-dums um, do dum-dum things. But, you know, every U.S. service member, regardless of which branch, are under a microscope over yeah. there uh, because they're – you know they're really uh, isolated from the rest of of the operating forces. Uh, if you drop some Marines in Southern California, you know there's a lot of crazy Americans over there, oh, and yeah. they're going to blend right in. Uh, I think that's what happens in um, you know the Okinawa government, Okinawa people. Um, well, generally they're very welcoming over there. Right. They're they're also weary because of what has happened in the past. Right, and it, it's been. You know, there, I'm sure most people involved in the veteran community, military community have heard over the years, the large protests in Okinawa that they want the, uh, the air base there and everything gone. They want, uh, is it Atsugi? Is that the air base in Okinawa? I'm trying to remember what Iwakuni, the name of it is. Iwakuni. Maybe. Iwakuni. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they, um, they, they want it gone. It, it's not a majority of the population who want it gone, but it's enough of them. And it's a very loud segment of the population that they've been looking at possibilities on how to do it and maintain the force readiness that requires the Marines being there. And it, it's interesting, you know, we talk about like, oh man, what's going on with the Marines in Okinawa? It's really the only place that Marines are forward deployed around the world. There are some Marines that you'll find in the European theater elsewhere in Asia, but that's basically the concentration. If you're a Marine and you're going overseas, it's Okinawa where you're going to be stationed, right? Right. Um, the Marine Corps has been putting more Marines into Guam, which is a U.S. territory, but still 
a long way from CONUS. I was stationed there. I was stationed there around the time that uh, Representative Hank Johnson uh, asked an admiral whether the Marines coming to Guam might flip the island over. Not jokingly, it was very serious and concerned, uh, and the admiral told him, well, Congressman, uh, no, we're not concerned about an island flipping over because of people. But even there, I mean, there, there's a lot of, I saw a lot more of it in my limited time in the Pacific theater than I did in Europe. I saw a little bit of it in Europe, a lot of the anti, uh, the anti-military, like we don't need the base here thing a little bit. There were protests like in Greece, but that was, they were like scheduled protests. Everybody got the day off to protest and it was a paid day off, but they had to go protest to do it. It was a very odd situation. Greece is a very odd place. Guam, there's a lot of anti-military sentiment there. And there's also a lot of anti-government sentiment. As you mentioned, they're an unincorporated U.S. territory, so they're not a state. However, the uh, residents of Guam are United States citizens. They also believe that they're due reparations for World War II from the United States government, which when I got there and heard that was like, that's a bit confusing. Wasn't it the Japanese who invaded here and tortured people and murdered people? And you find out, yes, it was. But Japanese tourism is, along with the United States military, like the, those are the top two industries on the island. So if you're going after Japan for war reparations, you're probably going to see fewer tourists coming down. And, and so, well, hey, we want some money. Let's let's go after the U.S. government. They've got a lot of it. I don't know if that's a better move, and I don't know if it'll improve anything other than it not being an international incident because it would be on U.S. territory. Because, I mean, we had... I had never seen for a place that small, and you're talking about a place that's like, I don't know, five miles to get north to south on the island or something like that. I had never seen an off-limits list as long as that outside of a major installation like Norfolk or something like that. There were so many off-limits places because sailors and airmen, there's an Air Force base on the north end of Guam, um, they would go into places and get jumped, essentially, sometimes because uh, the locals out there for one are big into mixed martial arts and a lot of them uh, train and would try like, Hey, here's somebody to try myself out against a United States military member. Think about that culture (laughs) combining with the Marine Corps culture. I I don't know. I mean, do you think that's the right move moving them away from Okinawa or do you think that, I mean, there are some people that would say, well, maybe we just shouldn't have Marines forward deployed at all. They just go on amphibs and they're ready to go from there and they don't have any forward presence. I think we need Marines in both places strategically, especially as Korea continues to be a hot spot. Yep. And I would think that the local populations, if they fully understand the how much safer they are having the yeah, U.S. Yeah. military there when it comes to you know crazy people in North Korea, then this is, this is something they should embrace. But uh, it, it's never going to change. And I don't think we are... In our lifetimes, we'll see uh, military leave either spot. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. I mean, Okinawa is strategically so important. And Guam, while it's, uh, it's, I feel like it's almost being used as a chip. Like, oh, look, we're, we're moving some Marines to Guam. We're going to do that. Guam is so much farther away from the mainland of Asia. When you're talking about, you know, North Korea, when you're talking about China, when you're talking about any hot spot that could erupt over there. You're talking several extra hours, even by aircraft, to get anybody on scene. So you'd be moving the Marine Corps farther away from Korea. In Okinawa, they're pretty darn close to Korea and pretty darn close to China. In fact, uh, Okinawan culture is kind of a mixture of Japanese and Chinese culture just because of, of 
geographically where it is. So I don't know. I don't think we'll ever see them totally leave Okinawa, but I think there's some uh, placating maybe of the Okinawan public. Like, oh, look, we've moved some Marines over here now. They're not all here anymore. So those are probably the troublemakers, the ones we got rid of. Let's look at it that way. It's uh, it's an interesting aspect. But if you are, uh, for some reason, listening to this from uh, streaming from over in Japan, I don't know what time of day it is there. What's it? It's later in the day. It's probably they're probably coming pretty close to getting off of work right now. Actually, now that I think of it, take it easy tonight. Don't go crazy. Let's not have any more incidents on the first night. But I've never thought that these prohibition things really work. First off, if I'm living off base, how are you going to stop me from going home and having a, a cocktail if I want to have one or having a beer with dinner? I've never, never thought that those things, one, were ever actually anything more than uh, lip service to the outside public because in the military, you know, man, you know where you're going to be able to go to get a drink, even if it's uh, off limits or whatever. I, but seeing it lifted, that's good. Although, as you said, again, if you're living in the barracks, if you're not married, you're not allowed to have alcohol between uh, midnight and 5 a.m., even if you are above an E5. Now, as someone who got less than four hours of sleep last night, I would say just go to sleep, man. Don't be up at 1 a.m. drinking. Don't do that. Just go and crash and do your thing. Well, we've been talking with Jake and a little bit of an early appearance from Joe Schinelli, but he's going to be here for our next segment, too. We're going to talk to him about several issues, including a concerning one when it comes to education benefits and what recently separated vets are being told. Again, later on in the show, Josh Carter, Navy veteran and chief operating officer of Patriot Boot Camp, will join us. That's a group working to help veterans and military spouses become creators entrepreneurs, innovators, and so much more. You're listening to the Innovative Morning Briefing here on CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Eric Dame, your host. Jake Hughes, your producer. Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of AMVETS and Marine Corps Veteran, coming up right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. I love that bass line. Yeah, waiting room. You're listening to the Morning Briefing. Welcome back. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is what we do, and it's your website. We mean that. Created by veterans for veterans. In fact, did you know everybody on our team is either a veteran or very closely related to the veteran community? It's true. 13 years in the Navy for me, 13 years in the Army for Jake, everybody else. Combination. Navy, Marine Corps, Army, National Guard. We've got it all, as well as military spouses, military dependents. So we have that unique insight that you're looking for from an organization providing news, info, even a little bit of entertainment regarding the veteran world. You're going to find it at ConnectingVets.com. And be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, the big four. We are there and we are doing what we can to get the best information out there. Again, uh, a great story yesterday on a story. It's a story on a story. The Washington Post, they got this amazing project. They found hundreds of World War II letters between four brothers, three of whom were serving, one of whom was given a deferment because of his job, and they found these letters in a storage locker in Arizona, 
a veteran found them actually, brought them to the Washington Post's attention. They've now created not only a great story on it, which you can check out by going through the link on our website, but you also have a podcast they've created with four veterans voicing the parts of the brothers, reading the letters. It's fascinating stuff. If you're a history buff like myself, a military buff like many of you are, you can find out all about it by going to facebook.com slash connecting vets and of course, connecting vets.com. Our next guest is the chief operating officer of Patriot Boot Camp. That's a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to assemble and activate an inclusive community that advances veterans and military spouses in their mission to become creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs leading the new economy. His name is Josh Carter, and we welcome him to the show now. Josh, good morning. How are you today? Hey, Eric. How are you this morning? I'm doing fantastic, man, and I'm glad I'm going to get to talk to you about Patriot Boot Camp. But first, I want to talk to you about Josh Carter. Now, I didn't mention it in that little intro there, but you are a veteran of the world's finest Navy. Tell us a little bit about your service, where you came from, what you did while you were in, and when you got out. Yeah, so I I got out quite a few years ago. I got in 97, but uh, I got in because I wanted to be uh, an animator of all things. Weird thing to go in the Navy for, but... uh, I wanted to be uh, an animator as a kid. I, I worked on a few cartoons, and then uh, when I got uh, into the Navy, uh, I wanted to be an illustrator draftsman. But unfortunately, there's no A school for illustrator draftsmen. So uh, my recruiter, and unbeknownst to me, put me in deck. So I was in deck for a number of years, uh, doing things like a deck person would do, chipping paint, uh, going over the side to paint, paint the boat, standing watch, driving the ship. Uh, until I moved over to Quartermaster so that I could focus on a little bit of the illustrated draftsman stuff. And then I got out, and then I decided to uh, pursue art and went to the Art Academy in San Francisco. Did that for about a year and discovered that that's just not where my passion was anymore and uh, ended up in telecom for a number of years uh, before I ended up in a small startup called Twilio that at the time nobody had heard of before. Uh, but now is, you know, as you know, a public company doing very well. Uh, but that's where I got the startup bug uh, from that. And so I created a couple startups, took that through Techstars, took that through Patriot Bootcamp. Actually, I was a, an attendee of, of Patriot Bootcamp. Uh, did that uh, for a while and until our startup died and then was asked to, to come lead Patriot Bootcamp. Wow. Very cool story of Josh's career in the Navy and his transition out. And let's go back to that for just a little bit. As you mentioned, you got out and, you know, as you told us, you joined the Navy with the idea of being an illustrator, an animator. That's kind of the thing you wanted to do. You get out, you go to school for it and realize, okay, this whole thing that's been my dream for a long time, uh, not for me. What was that transition period like? And what was it like figuring out that something you thought you'd wanted to do for so long actually wasn't what you wanted to do? Um, it was tough for a while. I, you know, when I, when I got out, um, I struggled to figure out what I wanted to do for about a year and a half. I actually moved because I was stationed in, ten, in uh, Mississippi of, of all weird places. I was stationed in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which is a lovely town if you're driving through. Uh, but when I got out, I, I decided that um, I was going to go be a, a mover for a year. So a friend of mine that I went to high school with, I didn't have a job lined up when I got out of the Navy said, hey, why don't you come live with us in Tennessee and you can help us. My dad owns a moving company. You can help us with that. So for a good year, I was living in Tennessee as a mover. And then uh, when I finally had scraped up enough money and and, uh, had gotten enough stuff to uh, go back to 
California, where I'm from, I, I moved back to California and uh, and raised enough cash to uh, get my own place and and go to school. Essentially, uh, I used the GI Bill, um, but at that school where I went to, which was the Art Academy in San Francisco, the GI Bill didn't pay for hardly anything at the time. Uh, I got a $800 stipend from the GI Bill that I could use for school or whatnot, but my, my units were $650 per unit. Wow. So um, I still ended up having to take a tremendous amount of student loans out. So that really jaded me for the whole process anyway. So I walked in with just this enormous chip on my shoulder for having to go through the Navy anyway and go, go to school and still have to take loans out. Um, so it was just, overall, it was just a, a really bad process. The school wasn't a horrible school, but it, the curriculum wasn't done very well. Um, so it, the whole experience was just horrible in general. So when I got out of school, I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and for you know a couple of years, I had some odd jobs. I worked at a cartridge store for a while um, until uh, one, of our fr- one of my family friends said, why don't you try to go into Pacific Bell? At the time, people who listen to this program will know these were the baby bells before when AT&T got broken up. So I, I worked for Pacific Bell for a number of, of months where I was climbing poles and crawling under houses, running residential phone line. But that single job sparked my transition into a career. So after I left PacBell, I worked for another company where I was doing phone systems, and then I was installing large phone system, and then every evolution of that career, I was moving, I was moving up. So I was doing larger phone systems. I was moving into voice over IP, <clears throat> then eventually moved into the cloud. And that's how my, my startup career really sparked. And that's how I progressed through, through that, um, through that journey. And you know, some people will, will find that story so relatable and re- and, and just the difference of this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. And then it turns out it doesn't work out that way. And you kind of find your own way through, but you know, it's important to find your way through and you certainly did. And then of course, as you mentioned before, you came to work with Patriot Bootcamp after actually going through their pro- program. So let's talk a little bit more about Patriot Bootcamp. Now tell us about this program. Where did it come from? When did it start? And what was the idea behind the uh, the beginning yeah so taylor mclemore who's our founder he had this idea that there had to be a better way to help transitioning vets learn how to start their own businesses and, and specifically in tech and so he approached uh david cohen at, at TechStars and said you know why why isn't this a thing why isn't TechStars doing this and uh david cohen's response was well then go do it just do it we'll happily support you but go do it and, and we'll do whatever we can to, to be supportive. And so that's exactly what Taylor did. Taylor went out and uh, in 2012, they did the first Patriot Boot Camp in, uh, in Washington, D.C. It was haphazardly put together, admittedly, uh, because they were just trying to figure out what they were doing. But fast forward now to 2017, we've had over 700 companies go through the program who have raised a collective six, $60 million in, uh, in total capital raised. Uh, we've had five exits, meaning companies have been acquired uh, that have gone through Patriot Bootcamp, companies like uh, Military One Click and UVise, and there's just so many really good success stories that have come through Patriot Bootcamp. But really, at its core, what it is is this three-day magical program that takes the TechStars three-month model and compresses it into a weekend. And so we provide programming, we provide mentorship, we provide uh, panel discussions and fireside chats, and 
And everything that you would traditionally get out of an accelerator, we put that in the three days. So you can imagine it's a very intense program. But what these entrepreneurs who are veterans or military spouses, these entrepreneurs that walk out, they walk out with this fundamental uh, tool, set, tool set to enable them to grow their businesses. Now they're ready to either go into a full accelerator like Techstars or Y Combinator or 500 Startups or what have you, or uh, they're ready to just keep scaling up their business. So we provide post-program support. So if uh, if somebody needs a business introduction into a, a Fortune 500 company, we can facilitate that introduction. If somebody needs um, to continue having the conversation within our alumni, we, we have that ability to do that as well. And so it's this remarkable program that helps these people uh, who are just trying to figure out their own journey. Uh, and it's amazing. I've, like I said, I've done... I've gone to two, and then I was a speaker slash mentor for the last two before I joined the organization full-time. And, of course, that organization is Patriot Boot Camp, and we are speaking with the chief operating officer of that organization, Josh Carter. And, you know, you mentioned the intensity of Patriot Boot Camp, and that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. With a name like that, I think a lot of vets are going to go in there kind of expecting that you guys are going to be in their face and kind of pushing them along and forcing them to do what they need to do to succeed. I mean, is that kind of uh, the feel behind it? What is the actual, the Patriot Boot Camp actually like as someone who's actually gone through it yourself and as someone who's now one of the people organizing it. Yeah, it's very similar. You know, I went through Techstars, which is a three-month program, and it's very similar to, to a, a regular military boot camp. We are breaking you down to build you up the way you should be operating, and that's a boot camp. That's exactly what a boot camp is. And so we, we definitely model that. Uh, we do our best uh, to not be too intrusive to your business um, because we know that uh, you're, you're at Patriot Boot Camp because you have some model of success. We are simply trying to be an arm of that. We are trying to take your successful idea and just make it uh, have a greater chance of success. You know, military veteran founders are twice as likely to be in business in five years as opposed to their uh, peers. And, and we want to give them even a greater shot of success by giving them access to mentorships, uh, people that have done amazing things in their own businesses who want to give back to the community, uh, VC investor community who who are itching, they have money burning a hole in their pocket to invest in veteran founders, and we just want to be that facilitator to enable that success to go even further. And that is certainly an important thing. It's also important to realize while veterans have been so successful with so many startups, I mean, we could list off the ones that have joined us on this show, Bottle Breacher. I mean, there are so many more that are doing such great things. For everyone that succeeds, there are quite a few that do not, and Every organization out there trying to help them figure out the right way to do things, I think, increases the chance that they'll be one of those success stories. Now, looking from your perspective as the COO of Patriot Bootcamp, what are some of the things that veteran entrepreneurs and innovators are doing right? And what are some of the things that they're doing wrong? That's a great question. And I can attest to that. You know, I've had a couple of startups fail um, and I've had a couple that have won. And I can tell you that we... We do our best to set the expectations as an organization uh, to of what these entrepreneurs are getting themselves into. But for the most part, they're built for it anyway. They, veteran entrepreneurs, they know how to do more with less. Uh, we know how to be tenacious. Uh, we know how to be patient. Um, but we also know how to pivot when we need to. Um, and I think we just uh, we, we do what we can to set that expectation. But it doesn't always work out. Look, 
80% of startups fail because of some sort of founder issue. And I know two of my startups have failed because of that. And it's hard to set an expectation of what it's like to go through your startup journey unless you've done it yourself. It is the hardest thing you will go through as a person. And, and, and I can attest to this. We, we've started to make mental health part of the discussion at Patriot Bootcamp. It's not always something we've done in the past. Techstars uh, and Brad Feld, who's the um, co-founder of, of Techstars, has made it a point to make mental health part of that discussion. And so we followed suit. And in the last Patriot Bootcamp, we had a discussion about what startup failure is like and how to deal with it. And, and one of the profound things that we learned was in having these open discussions is that we heard from veteran entrepreneurs who sat in a room with us uh, who said, look, because my startup may fail, um, I, I have suicidal thoughts. And that's profound. And the reason why it's profound is we didn't know that startup failure was more of a threat to veterans than PTSD. Mm. But it is. And, and that's a huge, huge thing to think about. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that these startup founders not only know how amazing this progress that they're making is through their startup and how amazing the journey is, but that there's also this, this other side of it if you don't succeed and you need to be prepared for that. And that Patriot Bootcamp as an organization, we're here to support you in any way. We've had a couple of recent failures of amazing people doing amazing things, and we are here to support them as well. So as, as someone who's gone through that journey of the ups and downs, I can tell you that um, it's just one of the most intense processes that you go through as a person. You have these enormous highs of like, oh, my God, I have this amazing VC that's emailing me out of the blue that wants to invest in my company. And then you have in the same day that I've experienced of, of getting into this argument with your founder and trying to figure out if you even want to do this with your founder. So you go through these ebbs and flows uh, emotionally of being a founder, and it's one of those things that uh, you can prepare yourself to go through something like that, but until you've gone through it, there's really, um, there's really nothing that you can do. And, and it's just we want to be supportive. We want to be there when they, go, when they have those successes, but we want to be there to catch them when they fall as well, and that's very important. We're speaking with Josh Carter. Josh is the Chief Operating Officer of Patriot Boot Camp. They're a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to assemble and activate an inclusive community that advances veterans and military spouses in their mission to become creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs leading the new economy. You know, hearing you talk about the importance of being prepared and being able to accept failure, Josh, brought up something that I've never really thought about before in this way, in that if you're a veteran, as long as you've got an, an honorable discharge, you're not a Bo Berg doll or somebody like that, you've been a success. For most of us, that's the first job that you have, joining out of high school or coming out of college as an officer and making it through and getting to the point where you become a veteran means that you survived a difficult job. You, you achieved in that job. You weren't kicked out. You made it through. Do you think that part of the problem is because of that, because we start off with the military career and the successes that we have in there, particularly people are going to be the driven types to start their own startups. Do you think part of the issue is that this might be their first taste of real failure? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't believe that to be true, and the data certainly doesn't support that. Most of our entrepreneurs that go through our program are older folks that, um, you know, maybe they've, they've had some moderate successes. We've had a lot of officers come through. Um, so I, I know that even in your military career, you're going to have ups and downs and failures. 
Um, but the thing that's amazing about the military is even if you have a failure, they're there to support you right. and pick you up. You know, your brothers and sisters are there to pick you when you fall down. And that's what we do. And so I think, um, you know, it's not necessarily that this is their first taste of failure. I think it's, 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 you're not, you feel as though you're alone. When you look, when you, when you fail as a startup founder, the emails stop, the calls stop, people stop checking to see how you're doing when you're doing well the emails and the calls, they flow constantly. You are a busy person. When you're not, that's a lonely place to be. And as a mentally, you don't know how to reach out to somebody to get help. And that's the same with PTSD. We hear it time and time again, where, uh, you know, a quarter of the, quarter of the, uh, uh, the veterans that commit suicide uh, for, because of PTSD or some other mental-related issue never reached out for help. Um, and, and that's true in, that's, there's no difference in the entrepreneurial world when, when we fail, that, that number is probably much higher because we have so much pride. We've, we've, uh, maybe we've taken some investments for some, from some people. So we don't want to let people down and that's just inherent. That's a veteran thing. That's, we don't want to let people down. And when we do that, that's, that hits our pride. And so I think, um, that's part of it. It's a mental thing and changing that stigma to say, it's okay to fail. People have failed all the time. You're going to fail. But it's how you pick yourself up that defines your character. And that's what we want to be. We want to be able to help those folks uh, and pick them up when they do fail uh, because it's going to happen. You're going to have ideas that are amazing, uh, but because either market or product market fit or founder issues or whatever, you run out of cash, um, those issues happen. And it doesn't mean that you are a bad person or you had a bad idea. It just means that, you tried, you swung for the fences and missed. It's, it happens to the best of us. Oh, it absolutely does. And you know, it, it, you brought up a great point there. Essentially, the military is your safety net. Again, if you don't do something uh, of a very serious nature, if you don't fail in a serious way, you're still going to be there. You're going to have a job. You're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, you can go to your career counselor, you can go to the chaplain, you can go to whoever. When you're out of the military, a lot of that support structure and safety net that you have in the military is gone but it's not because there are organizations out there like Patriot Boot Camp who are working to help and support the uh, the veteran community, particularly those in the case of Patriot Boot Camp, who see themselves as innovators and see themselves as entrepreneurs and think they have the next great idea. Well, you know what? This is an organization that's going to look to try and help you figure out if it is that next great idea. So when it comes to Patriot Boot Camp, looking at the website people can see since, you know, your first one, I believe it was back, was it 2012 when you had your first uh, Patriot Boot Camp event? That's right. So since 2012, so we're talking uh, five years now, there have essentially been uh, about, what, 10, 11 events, so an average of two a year. The Patriot Boot Camp in person is uh, one thing. Are there any online things that you guys offer that you're able to provide to people, or do they need to go to the actual Patriot Boot Camp? Yeah, they need to come to the Patriot Boot Camp, and that's the difference between uh, organizations that are doing similar things than that we, that we are doing. Pardon me. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that the magic stays within that, that programming, that three-day programming, because that really is the magic. Uh, you know, we're flirting with some ideas uh, of having ancillary events. Because we're a tech-focused organization, we can really fit a niche. Uh, and so as a result, we're, we're talking about doing a hackathon in April in Washington, D.C. We've never done a hackathon before. Uh, but it really helps us kind of move upstream for entrepreneurs who want to build a product or service 
who are thinking about starting a company, that's a great place to start to vet those ideas. And so we really want to be seen as the premier tech program for these veteran and military spouses to bring their ideas to the forefront. And so as a result, the three-day program really is at the heart of what makes us special. And so we want to do more programming. We're looking at doing more than just two or three programs a year. Uh, so we're, we're talking about adding more partnerships. We'd like to bring in more sponsors so we can facilitate that. Um, so, so really, at the heart, the three-day program is where it's at. And of course, when you're averaging two a year, that means you know people might need to travel to them. And it's great to hear that you guys are looking at adding more events in more locations. Uh, what is the next Patriot Boot Camp event that's available to people? And if they're interested, how can they find out about uh, you know trying to sign up for it? Yeah, thanks for that. So right now, the next Patriot Boot Camp is in San Antonio, Texas, from February 16th to 18th. Applications are open now, so if people go to patriotbootcamp.org, they can just scroll down half the page. They'll see apply now. They can do that. It doesn't take very long. They just uh, provide some information about their business or their idea. Uh, they record a short video uh, if they choose, and uh, and then we we will open our, our selection process in mid January, and then uh, they will come out to San Antonio for the three day program. Um, it's uh, it's one of the most amazing programs, and San Antonio is such a great town for this. And that's what we try to do. We deliberately try to find really good military communities to bring these programs uh, to, to the to their community. So San Antonio is uh, definitely one of those that we've done before. Uh, Denver is is a place we've uh, had our program as well. Uh, we've gone to 11, uh, nine cities, 11 programs so far, and over 700 companies, like I said before, have gone through the program. And not just veterans, but also, as you guys are, are clear to point out in your mission statement, military spouses are included in this as well. How important do you think it is for Patriot Boot Camp to offer that service to the military spouses who are, let's be honest, often forgotten or an afterthought when it comes to talking about veterans' issues? Supremely important. In fact, our chief operating, our chief executive officer, Charlotte Creech, is a military spouse as well. It is very important for us to be inclusive in that community. They, as you said, they are amazing stewards of military families and often are uprooted from city to city uh, for no, no fault of their own. They, they just kind of need to be facilitators for that. And we want to make sure that they're included in this. So uh, we've had you know, military one click, Jen Pilcher, she's a Navy vet. Uh, she's come through and, and all these other amazing military spouses that have come through the program. Uh, we That's another way we are uh, a bit different than other programs is that we do include military spouses in our programming. And it's very, very important that we distinguish that these, these uh, folks are included in our programming. And they have some fantastic ideas. I mean, we just talked to one yesterday. Right. We talked to uh, the, the creator of Moving with the Military. So much great stuff going on out there. So many great ideas that veterans and military spouses have. And it's great to hear that there are organizations like Patriot Boot Camp looking to give them a helping hand and getting it off the ground. We've been speaking with the chief operating officer of Patriot Boot Camp, Josh Carter. Josh, very quickly, if people want to find out about Patriot Boot Camp, find out about the event in February in San Antonio, where do they go to do it? They could go to patriotbootcamp.org. All of the information is there on the website. They can follow us on Twitter, just Patriot Bootcamp. We have a Facebook page as well. Uh, or people can email me, carter at patriotbootcamp.org. We want to thank Josh Carter so much, as well as Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of AMVETS, for the good information he gave us today. We will be back tomorrow, Friday, VFW Day, Morning Briefing. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.